This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel M. Lavery. With me in the studio this week is Annalie Newitz, a science journalist, science fiction writer, and contributor to the New York Times opinion section. They're the author of the book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, and the novels, The Future of Another Timeline, and Autonomous, which won the Lambda Literary Award. Annalie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I am thrilled. We have a real like theme today, which is like chafing against the edges of womanhood, I guess. <laughs> yes, I think that's a good way to to put it. Yeah, living in the the liminal zone. You got to you got to liminal it up. Uh, otherwise, yeah. you're just going to end up with a an even more serious chafing yeah. problem. It's like liminalate or laminate, just pick one. Yeah. Um not this first one exactly. This first one's a little bit uh, a little bit out of the box, but um, certainly I think isn't unconnected with some of the issues that sometimes go along with white womanhood. So uh, maybe it is on theme after all. Lucky sure. me, I get to read it. And the subject is, guess who's coming for dinner? Dear Prudence, my husband and I have devoted our whole careers to civil rights issues. In addition, we have spent countless hours volunteering for campaigns, nonprofits, and charities to advance rights for black people. We would have loved it if our daughter took an interest in this, but she never did, and we didn't want to force her. In the last year, she has begun listening to podcasts and attending Black Lives Matter protests. She also has a new boyfriend. He is black. She has never dated anyone but white men before. Recently, I had the opportunity to meet her new boyfriend. He's a very impressive young man with a lot of talent and ambition. I enjoyed hearing about his education and career, which he's clearly passionate about. He was impressed by my career as well. Unfortunately, after we talked for a while, I got too informal and may have accidentally let it slip that my daughter never had an interest in civil rights work until it became trendy. I know it's none of my business, but I can't help but feel like my daughter is wearing a black man as a fashion accessory and we'll dump him as soon as the next trend comes along. If I weren't her mother, I would suggest that he find a nice black girl or more honest white ally. What is the right thing to do here? Oh my. I'm just going to breathe out first because I would like to, I think, be a little too sharp with this letter writer. And I think my initial response to what is the right thing to do here is probably, I'm just going to breathe out and let that one go. Okay, I'm not going to say the first answer that sprang to my mind. I will say, however, that the right thing to do here is just cultivate shutting up. Oh, my God. What is the matter with you? I'm going to say it one more time. What is the matter with you? I mean, it's no wonder that this poor young woman never shared her interests with her parents if this is how they repay her by humiliating her in front of her boyfriend. Or if this is her idea of civil rights activism. Yeah. 
Like, if you find yourself saying, I just met this guy, and part of me wants to tell him he should find a nice black girl to date, like, do you hear yourself? Does that sound like a normal, reasonable thing to say to a young person you have just met? Like, it's one of those things where it's like, it's so, you think you're being so affirming that you are, in fact, just being racist? Like, my God, you, who, who on earth are you to tell this young man who to date? You just met him. You shouldn't be telling him anything except for like where the bathroom is if he doesn't <laughs> know where the bathroom is in your house. Yes. I I also feel like there's this slippage going on between the idea of a political belief system that the daughter is clearly kind of awakening to um, and who she dates. And this mom is just projecting this idea onto her that somehow who she dates is exactly the same thing as civil rights activism and then conflating that further with this idea of like, I guess, radical chic. And so I feel like mom's doing a lot of projecting here. Mm -hmm. A lot lot of projecting. projecting, And I'll say it, you know, a lot of infantilizing this young man. Who you know, you 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 say that you have worked your your whole life to to be an ally in in anti racist work. So I just have to assume you're a little bit familiar with the tendency of white people to infantilize black people and to say, "I know what's best for you." That again, you felt so free to say to this man whose acquaintance you had just made something wildly speculative about your daughter's intentions and you are now tempted to try to tell him who he should date instead of her. It's just, you should feel 800% more restrained. Like you should feel way less comfortable around this young man. And I don't mean like you should feel like you're on tender hooks, just like you feel too free. You have taken too many liberties. You have forgotten yourself. If this were a Victorian novel, I would tell you, you had just forgotten yourself. Um, And to please, you know, remember your better self, like, God damn it, just don't say anything. I mean, yeah, that's the number one, right? And that you don't say anything in this situation. But also, I, and I think you're right to focus on how this is kind of about her wanting to control this guy mm-hmm. um, and and sort of be like, oh, don't date my white daughter, which if you kind of unpack it is sort of what she's saying. Um, but I also kept wondering about her relationship with her daughter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this it, there's so much judgment There's so much, you know, like, well, she was never interested in this until now with the podcasts. And I kept, you know, how old is this daughter? She refers to the boyfriend as a young man. And it feels to me like this is maybe a college age daughter or like just out of college. Exactly the age when you expect people to start becoming more aware of political issues. So cultivate their own political identity and values. Yeah. But again, to, to go back to what I was saying earlier, like with a mother this judgmental, I can absolutely understand why this person never wanted to talk to her mom about politics. Like this is what she gets is this complete disrespect. Her mom doesn't even believe that the daughter could have these values, like that somehow, even though she's expressing these values, she doesn't really have them. Um, I feel like there's a lot of mother-daughter issues that need to be addressed here. Yeah, I think this was absolutely about wanting to make your daughter look shallow, frivolous, uh, like she was joining a bandwagon, like she didn't care about him as a person. And certainly it's possible for somebody to uh, adopt brand new politics based on their new dating habits. Certainly there's ways to do that that are super fucked up. 
Um, but neither is it true that like if she became interested in the Black Lives Matter protest and then also started dating a young black man at the same time that she's wearing him like an excess. Like that is just God damn. That's an awful thing to say. Um, Do you think she said this to him? Christ, like, I hope not. I kept wondering when she's, I got too informal and may have accidentally let slip. And I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> what did you say? You got too, like, you need to get formal, ma'am. Like, <laughs> send yourself to finishing school. Get formal. This is not your business. That um, is right. You know, if if all that's happened is your, it sounds like recent college graduate daughter has only recently gotten into like civil rights protests and has also started dating a black guy. Um, that is not grounds to say, I don't think she sees him as a person and is wearing him like a purse. That is degrading, dehumanizing. You are bringing a whole mess of baggage to this situation that I don't think you can actually foist on your daughter. Um, you need to back way off. You need to continue backing way off on your daughter's dating life. Um, you should apologize very briefly to him. And I mean incredibly briefly, just I'm sorry. I uh, was a busybody the last time that we spoke, and I apologize. That wasn't my place. That's all you need to say. Um, don't bring up your career. Don't bring up what you thought you meant to say. Um, don't say anything other than that wasn't my place and I was wrong. And then talk to him about, you know, what movies has he seen lately? You know, keep it real, real informal for a year. Calling herself a busybody, I think, is a great it's a great way to own it. Yeah, you really fucked up. And, and fucked up in a way that makes me very concerned about how you may have been bringing this kind of domineering, infantilizing, creepily overbearing energy to your career, uh, supposedly uh, advancing rights for black people. Um, I, I would be very surprised if this was the first time you had demonstrated such paternalistic racism towards a black person before. And I hope you stop and and just keep stopping keep stop stopping <laughs> continue to stop wow um fully agree and just don't push it yeah don't be surprised if your daughter does not bring him around a lot uh or doesn't bring anyone else she dates in the future around you're gonna have to earn that trust back and you're gonna have to do it slowly so good luck write to us in a year i would love to hear how you're how you're growing you know Would you go ahead and read our next letter? I will indeed. The subject is climax or bust. Dear Prudence, I'm a 33-year-old woman with a 29-year-old woman. We've been together for four years. Our relationship is mostly great with normal hiccups. She is my first sexual partner and likely will be my only as we plan to marry in the spring. Often when we are intimate, we use a vibrator. I enjoy it. I have kind of a short tolerance for it, so I don't always have an orgasm, but that's okay with me. However, there is one thing that happens a lot that bothers me, and I'm not sure if it's a red flag since I've never had sex with anyone else. She gets mad when I don't climax. I'll say our safe phrase that means I'm done with this part, let's do something else, and she'll say, no, you're not done, and keep going or angrily stop. She'll sometimes just insects altogether and turn off the lights for bed. It makes me feel like I fucked up. I'm not sure what to do or how I can let her know I really was having fun 
even though I didn't have a big O, besides telling her a lot, which I already do. Please help. Oh my. This one made me very sad and very angry. And um, I just want to start with letter writer. I am so sorry. Um, I'm especially sorry that you have kind of doubted yourself because you haven't slept with other people. So you have felt like maybe you don't have a reason to object. I just want to read this part again. I say our safe phrase, which means I'm done. Let's do something else. And she says, no, you're not and keeps going. And that's just rape. Um, I'm really yeah, that, sorry. Yeah, that was the phrase that really stood out to me too. Um, and I was like, you know, set aside everything else in this letter and just focus on the big problem is not respecting the safe word. You know, when someone tells you to stop and you keep going, that's, you know, that's not a sexual problem. That's a much bigger problem. That's a relationship problem. That's a violation of a boundary. And so I think that's, I mean, that's the first thing that really needs to be tackled. Like, I think that's before anything else, let's respect safe words. Yeah. And to me, my main concern here is like, she does this angrily. She really knows what the safe word is supposed to mean because she says, no, you're not done. And when she doesn't respond to that by raping you, which I'm sorry, I don't mean to say any of this like for shock value or to upset or distress the letter writer. Um, So I'll just kind of rein in that, that affect for now. But when she does not respond by raping you, she then um, turns all the lights off and, and freezes you out. Those are both really deliberate, really bad things. And so where I am coming from in this is I do not think you should marry her. I don't think this is the kind of thing that you should try to talk to her about or explain better. I think you've been very clear. You've been repeatedly clear. I think she is choosing to rape you because she is angry and wants to punish you for wanting to stop. And I just don't, that's not a problem that I would say, hey, maybe you two can find a workable compromise. So my advice here is, I think you should read this letter out loud to some of your close friends. Just tell them exactly what you told us. I think that if you let the other people in your life know what's happening, they will be able to offer you support um, and comfort as you figure out how to get out of this relationship. But I do think that this should be a relationship ender. I don't think you have been unclear. I don't think she just doesn't understand. Um, I, I don't think it's just like, oh, if only she knew how much fun I was having, she wouldn't do this. She doesn't care that you're having fun or not. She's angry with you for not making her feel like the world's greatest lover. And she chooses to punish you through rape. And that is not a person you can trust. You can't trust this woman. Yeah. And I mean, the letter writer asks, you know, is this a red flag? And I think, you know, let's just to be clear. Yes, this is a red flag. This is when you, you know, and especially the fact that she says this has happened repeatedly. Like this is common. This isn't like a one time, you know, and I really, I mean, on top of the like, please talk to your friends part of this message, which I think is absolutely right. I want to just offer the reassurance that no, this isn't normal. Like this isn't how a typical relationship unfolds, um, either sexually or emotionally. And yeah, every relationship has its ups and downs. People do have really terrible arguments about sex and come back from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this isn't an argument. This is non-consensual sex. 
And, you know, I I actually wonder if there's a, a piece that we're not hearing in this letter where maybe her partner is saying like, oh, well, you're inexperienced, so you don't really know how this goes. It just feels like there's some gaslighting going on maybe um, underlying this. And this is, you know, you will find another relationship with someone who respects your safe words and maybe who will explore with you what you actually want to do in bed and not what they want you to do. Right. Right. I, I'm really glad that you pointed that out too, because I, I don't mean to say that, of course, in a, in a, in an otherwise healthy relationship, you might fight about sex. You know, somebody might say stop and the other person might get frustrated. Um, that's all okay. I, I, there's absolutely going to be conflict and frustration around sex that may sometimes even come up during sex. But what you need from your partner is to know that they can handle their frustration that you can agree on like words or phrases or signals that things need to stop and that you both know when one of us invokes that, the other one listens. Um, I mean, certainly beyond that, I I think it's super reasonable to say to someone, I don't always come during sex. I want to say something to let you know when I'd rather stop trying to go for an orgasm, but that's not a problem for me or a sign that I'm sexually unfulfilled. I do believe that most people would hear that pretty in a fairly relaxed and open-minded fashion. But even if you had a partner who did sometimes experience frustration on that front, it would be totally sane and reasonable to expect them to still respect your no when you said no and to not pout or or throw a fit or assault you. Um, so, so even within that context of, uh, well, what if somebody was frustrated about that dynamic? Uh, this This would still not be anywhere near a, a healthy, normal lapse of judgment. This is... Yeah, that's right. You respond to that kind of frustration if you're, you know, being um, a helpful and supportive partner by saying like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. You know, you might maybe like feel a little sad and, but, you know, not all sex has to have this weird telos of the orgasm. <laughs> yeah. Not all sex leads to orgasm. Sometimes yeah. sex just leads to cuddling or other happy things. So. Or, or even for like an expression of frustration that's not about punishing your partner for, yeah. you know, not getting off. Like, I think that's another thing too, is like, it's okay to feel kind of wiped out or like, oh, I felt like we were close. That's hard and frustrating. But in a way that's not like, God damn it. And turning all the lights off. Like, that's just yeah. vicious. It's and an not attack. vicious, you know? Like it's, I mean, it feels like what she's trying to get out of you is either like, you know, I want you to fake orgasm for me or I want to be able to just, you know, assault you when I think it's time for you to orgasm. And that's both are really bad. Yeah. There's really nothing that can be done with this situation other than try to get out. Yeah. When you say I'm done having sex and your partner's response regularly is, no, you're not done. I'm going to keep having sex with you. That is just as conscious and avowed an acknowledgement of sexual assault as I think you can do. Um, that's what it is. And I'm really sorry because um, I, I know you say that things are mostly great. And I think you want for that not to be true. But it is true. And I'm so sorry. And you deserve so much better than this. Okay, good luck. I would love to hear from you again soon. Please, please write back if you can. Um, we will just be pulling for you. I'm going to move on to something that is a little bit more sort of open-ended and just a sort of like general problem of being alive and 
experiencing vanity and all that. So the subject of this letter is fear of aging. Dear Prudence, like many people, and particularly women, I have this terrible fear of aging. I'm 26. I like my current job. I'm about to start a new master's degree. I also have higher ambitions that revolve more around writing and publishing literary content online. The problem is I feel too old already. I don't know why, as this pressure doesn't come from friends and family. I see people every day younger than me being published, having already achieved so much. And while I try not to dwell on jealousy too much, and I generally support them, it does sting a little bit. I struggle to imagine success at an older age, and I fear that I won't be relevant anymore or hip anymore, for lack of a better term. How do I get over this and learn to still embrace life fully as I near my 30s? I I very much appreciate that. I hope, letter writer, that you can take heart in the fact that I am well in my 30s. I'm 34, as a matter of fact. Um, I did skip out on uh, women's anxieties about aging, obviously, by transitioning as soon as I hit my 30s. One solution you might want to consider. You still have four years. Um, but, uh, you know. I just, I felt like um, I had so many feels about this because... Um, you know, my first impulse was to kind of laugh because it's like, come on, 26 years old, like your life is ahead of you, my child. On the other hand, this is a serious reality, especially because this is a person who wants to go into publishing and there's so much like online. And I feel like we're bombarded with this idea, especially in like, not just publishing, but like creative industries generally that like, yeah, you have to be like, 18 or like if you haven't published your first epic fantasy novel at the age of 20 you're washed up forget it you know you got to start really young otherwise you know no one's going to pay attention to you and so this is you know this is a very real issue like this is not you know just a matter of like oh buck up you know feel better like there is this actual pressure um in in the publishing industry and in creative industries so i think part of what we have to do is acknowledge yeah, this is an issue. People will judge you as you get older. Um, And that's something that you have to be prepared to say, you know, fuck off to, you know, to just say like, no, that's wrong. Like, absolutely not. It doesn't matter if I'm 56 or 26. Like, I can still write a mean little essay about aesthetics or whatever it is that this person wants to write about. Yeah, I I think that's a good balance to strike, too, because I think the part of me that wanted to smile in my answer was the sort of like, hey, you are 26 and you like your job. That's terrific. You are not on death's door. You are in fact going to get a lot older and there may even be a day when you will look back and think, wow, 26 is not old. But, you know, being afraid of aging and like death and uncertainty, that makes sense to me. That's not silly. Um, And certainly, especially something as like evanescent with as high a turnover rate as publishing literary content online. Yeah, it's very much a young person's game. Absolutely, ageism is a factor in most industries. Um, so so that's not a foolish or a ridiculous fear that you just created wholesale out of nowhere. Uh, that comes from someplace, and, and you can see that in, in all sorts of fields. Um, so uh, the question of, like, how do I learn to embrace life fully is one I feel like I can try to answer. How do I get over my fear of aging? That one's a little bit more like, Boy, isn't that the human condition? <laughs> yes. Read some Sartre. <laughs> I was actually going to suggest read Proust. Um, read mm. In Search of Lost Time. It's long, so it'll take you a while, and that will make you feel like you are sitting deeply with time. Um, and it's also upsetting and delightful, and um, I'm reading it now, so you should too. 
That's my thing is I'm like, if I'm reading something for the first time, I'm like, you should think about this. Mm-hmm. Also, it's easier for me to pronounce Proust than Sartre. Uh, so I yeah, feel more too. confident recommending him. I actually felt a little embarrassed even as I said Sartre. I was like, should I say Sartre? Oh, but man. I, I didn't. That's next I, level. I, but, I can't, but I feel like that actually I feel worse doing that because I feel like I'm trying and failing as opposed to just not even. Very difficult trying. to say French words. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. I struggle to imagine success at an older age. That makes sense to me. It's also a little difficult to imagine something like success. That's a big, vague word. Um, get specific as often as you possibly can. You know, you you have ambitions that revolve more around writing and publishing literary content online. That's very open-ended. I'm also not sure what literary content is. Does that mean novels? Does that mean short stories? Does that mean criticism about literature? What what is literary content to you? Uh, and and get as specific as possible. Um, and and if they revolve around writing, again, you know, okay, get specific. How many words would you like to have written by the end of the month? By the end of the year, would you like them to be all in service of a single project or in multiple projects? Do you want to join a writers group so that you can have people you know encourage you and give you good feedback in your work? If so, do you like the first writers group that you join, or do you hate it? Do you want to start your own? Um, all of those are great questions. Do you want to start looking for agents? Do you want to work on a novel? Do you want to get a uh, you know one-off freelance gig at a magazine or, or other outlet that you like? Uh, and if so, how can you start pitching one of the editors? You know, if your goal is just like, oh, I hope someday to not be too old and to publish literary content online, it's just so vague and open-ended, I fear that you will... Uh, you know, you will not think of like, how can I get from where I am right now to there? Um, so the more specific and and limited you can get in your ambitions, I think actually the better off you will be. That is incredibly good advice. And I wish I'd had it when I was this person in my late 20s trying to figure out how to do this. I think worrying about being old is a way of kind of avoiding doing the nitty gritty of making those lists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's absolutely the case that when when I was transitioning from being an academic to trying to do journalism, this is how I did it. I made a list of places I wanted to publish. I made a list of things I wanted to write about. And I put them on a little bulletin board next to my desk, like a little murder wall of publishing goals. And um, (laughs) and, uh, it really helps just to have concrete goals that will come. Some of those goals might come next year. Some of them might come in 10 years. Um, And the other little piece that I wanted to add is just, if you're having a hard time imagining being older and successful, look to some role models that are older. You will find some. There are a ton of us out here who are over the age of 26. (laughs) There's a whole fucking cottage industry of people who just tweet stuff like, if you think you're too old, such and such a person couldn't read until they were 49. Truth. Um, (laughs) That is itself enough of a cliche that like you will find lots of encouragement on that front. Right. Joseph Conrad didn't even learn to write in English until he was in his 20s. All right. Come on. I differ from Joseph Conradically. All of which is to say, beyond that, too, um, I think it's also great to be motivated by fear some of the time. Uh, I think that that's a great motivator. I myself have sometimes been motivated by fear. 
when I was in my 20s, I had a day job that was okay, and I really wanted to write for a living and also to be, you know, universally adored and to be given lots of attention. And I wanted that so badly, it made my stomach hurt. And sometimes I would just drive into work and I would think, if I have to work here another day, I'm going to like scream until a volcano erupts. Like that was an intense feeling. It had to do with a deep desire and a lot of ambition. And, I, you know, I, it, it, it would not have, been good if that had been the only thing I felt around the clock. But it is okay, I think, sometimes to be motivated by fear and anxiety and urgency. It it adds a real, you know, potency to uh, your desire to get things done. And I would just ask yourself too, at the end of this, you know, when I tell myself I'm too old, what does that protect me from? And um, I think there can be ways in which it can sort of feel like I don't quite know where to begin. And I feel like I need an invitation to start it. And I feel like other people have gotten those invitations and I'm mad at them. And if I just tell myself that I'm too old, then that means that I wouldn't have been able to do it even if I started now. So instead, I can just say, what a shame that, you know, no one cultivated my my inner strengths when I was 15. Um, it's too late now. And so just in those moments, I think the best thing you can do is say to yourself, well, I will quite literally never be as young as I am right now in this moment. So... I can either do it now at this age or just continue to get older. That part you cannot change. That's right. Someday you Start will be making a list. 34. <laughs> and, you know, presumably someday I'll be 35. And if there's a number higher than that, I might even age into it. Wow. It's, it's linear time. It's, it's, I, it's rough. Sorry. And I, I don't mean to like totally just mock that concept. I just, I, I get it. It's hard. And, um, and and like I said, it's real. Like it's a real pressure that we all feel. And like it's a it's why people pretend to be younger than they are. You know, it's it's not it's not a fake thing. But on the other hand, like I said earlier, you've got to cultivate a feeling of like fuck what people think. And I'm yeah. going to make my goddamn list of the places yeah. I'm going to publish. And if no one reaches out to me, I'm going to reach out to them. And I'm going to do it until they listen to me. Mm-hmm. And fuck the haters. The end. I don't even think this person has haters. Like, I don't, I don't want to encourage too much. I mean, I'm talking about the like the systemic haters of aging women. Just All right. The concept this is a of fuck haters. you to systemic sure. <laughs> hatred. It's always nice yeah. to think of a new guy to get mad at. Um, yeah, exactly. As they say about Especially Twitter. a straw man and one that's really vague and nebulous. Of course. So it's really <laughs> just spray that feeling into the universe. <laughs> okay. Okay. We're going to wrap up. Last question. Chafing again, just just more chafing, and you get to read it. All right. Subject, attraction whiplash. Dear Prudence, I, a cis queer woman, and my partner, non-binary, have a deeply loving, engaged relationship. Our grown children care about each other deeply, and generally all is well. On to our one problem. My partner usually has a fairly masculine, though bordering on androgynous presentation. We've known each other for a long time, and it is this presentation with which I have a long history. In the past few years, however, they have days where they have a very, very femme presentation. Their voice is distinctly higher, they dress in a very feminine style, use floral fragrances, and even seem to have somewhat different interests. It's a dramatic change. On these days, we hang out and do our usual routines, but I feel so differently towards them. I am wildly attracted to the usual way they look, behave, sound, and even smell. And it's like all my cues are missing when they are presenting in this super femme way. 
I have had relationships with various people who identified as male, female, trans, gender fluid, etc., and I'm attracted to a range of gender expressions, but I've never really been attracted to anyone very femme before. My attraction skews toward androgynous folk, never toward very conventionally masculine or feminine people. On days where my partner is so femme, I find myself behaving differently toward them, still with great respect and care, but like I would behave with someone who is attracted to me, but to whom I don't want to give the wrong signals, just very platonically. I don't know what to do or how to talk with them about this in a way that is loving and supportive of their gender expression, but also conveys how differently I feel about them when they seem almost like a different person. I would love to hear your perspective on how I can respectfully communicate these feelings to them or change my approach to these femme days. We normally communicate so well, but I'm so afraid I'm going to botch this conversation. I'm glad that we saved this until the end because I think originally my response was a little bit more brisk and um, I feel a little bit more, I don't know, I'm like doing a weird gesture that's sort of attempting to denote like, Lucy guess, open-heartedness. Um, <laughs> I I want to start my answer by holding two things to be true that are not necessarily contradictory, but are not, uh, they're not right next to each other either. One is whenever the question of anything remotely like trans femininity comes up and you yourself are not a trans woman or a trans feminine person, it is good to assume that you've got some trans misogyny that you have just picked up from the world because the world, you know, sort of like America runs on Duncan, that slogan is like, the world sort of runs on trans misogyny in a lot of ways. So that is, I think, a good thing to hold to be true. Not so that you can say that makes me a bad, awful person and the most morally good thing I can do is find, you know, something hot. That's not what I'm saying at all, but just um, uh, non-anxiously acknowledge that that's probably at play here in addition to other desires, interests, preferences, habits, etc., um, and the other is that, you know, you don't have a horrible secret to reveal to your partner if part of what you're just saying is like, femme stuff isn't super hot for me. Um, I, I, you know, it's a part of our relationship where I'm happy for you. I feel really comfortable like spending time together in that mode, but I want to make it clear that it's not hot for me. I, I do also think that that is not an evil thing to feel or think. You do not need to be mad at yourself for not finding a particular mode of your partner's attractive, and it's not your job to find it hot in order to be a good person. Again, I realize that um, at first blush they can sound a little contradictory. I don't think that they are. Uh, it's it's sort of like you can think about trans misogyny and, you know, maybe some days you'll interestingly think like, oh, some of that's lifted or I have a different response to this now. But I don't expect that investigating that part of yourself will mean someday you'll say like, now I find like feminine people super hot all the time. Good news. Yeah, I totally agree. And I definitely had that same feeling when I was first reading this, um, especially because it sounds like this is kind of new. And so she's having to deal with her feelings about this sort of femme side of her partner for maybe for the first time. And the other thing that I wanted to bring up, which is that this is a long-term relationship. These people have been, I mean, they have grown children. So, you know, it seems to me that, you know, gender stuff aside for a moment, it's really typical to have days when you feel cuddly and platonic toward your partner and other days when you want to fuck their brains out. Like that's completely common. And I mean, even in a short-term relationship, that's true. And so I don't think 
I don't think that the letter writer needs to t- to sort of twist herself up in pretzels, feeling bad about the fact that like, oh, there's some days when I just love her as a friend. Um, and I, you know, and other days, or I love them as a friend, sorry. There's some days. Sure, and that sometimes people have like sort of fluid pronoun shifts, like when they're in different And we don't even and- know, but we, we, let's yeah. assume they. Um, and so, you know, so some days you love them as a friend. Some days you love them as a fuck toy. And that's, that's just how relationships are. And I, I also think that there's what's really encouraging about this letter is that the letter writer is kind of owning that this is about them and that they're saying, like, this is feelings I'm bringing to it. I'm feeling a certain way about my partner's gender presentation um, and that they're it sounds like that means that they're ready to kind of do the work of thinking about how how to manage those feelings. And like one way to do it is to say either have a, an honest conversation with your partner, have a kind of conversation with yourself about this um, and say, you know, yeah, it's it's okay for me not to want to hump my partner all the time. Like, that's fine. Um, and and in even it's even normal. Yeah, and I think really the, the underlying thing here is you say, there's a dramatic change in one aspect of our relationship that's relatively new, our relationships of long standing. And it doesn't sound like you two have ever really talked about it in depth. So it makes sense to me that you're feeling nervous, um, that you're like, well, I have some thoughts that I kind of want to share with my partner so we don't end up making assumptions about each other. But I also don't want to go into it in a way that shuts my partner down or makes them feel bad. So, yeah, I think the reason that you feel like trepidation right now is just, you know, I don't know how to have this conversation, this change you know, my partner hasn't said much about this change yet, so I just don't know what to say. That makes sense to me. And, you know, the only thing there that I would really steer you away from, letter writer, is that thing about, you know, uh, they feel like a different person on those days. Because I think we're we're not there, but we're like, this is the road that will eventually take somebody to the kind of place where somebody transitions and they say, it feels like you died. Again, you're, I don't want to say like that's that's going to be you tomorrow or that your partner's going to transition. I just mean like um, what you mean, I think, is something really different is going on and my partner and I aren't talking about it. And I have reactions to it that I'm not sharing. I have questions that I'm not asking. Because I don't know those things, we feel increasingly alienated from one another. And that makes me feel like I don't know my partner. That, I think, is the issue that you're having here, not, you know, if my partner wears a ponytail all of a sudden, it's like my spouse is gone. Um, your partner's very much the same person. You two just need to talk. And so I think the way to begin that conversation is just, hey, I love you. I'm a little worried about starting this conversation, mostly because I'm nervous that I will say something wrong or hurt your feelings. I really want to talk to you about the fact that over the last few years, you've had a lot more femme days than you used to. I'm not asking because I want to interrogate you or because it has to mean something or you have to tell me exactly what you think it means. It's just Normally we talk about this stuff and we haven't talked about this one yet. And I want to hear from you what that's felt like, if that's felt tied to anything, if it feels really good, if it's felt relatively casual, like tell me. And and then, you know, listen for a while and then you can share some of your reactions to that and go from there. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, I mean, this is something that I've dealt with as a non-binary person myself because... I feel like once you come out as non-binary, you have more, 
permission maybe, or at least some of us feel like we have more permission to kind of experiment with gender presentations that we might not have before. And I mean, my experience has been, I have kind of days where I feel like in the way that this person is saying, I, there's days that my partner has where I think they're really hot and days where they seem like a friend. I have days like gender wise where it's like, I feel like a friend or I feel really like, like I'm ready to like go get some wherever it is. Like <laughs> trying to sound like a 1960s movie. I'm going to go hook up at the whatever at the saloon. What um, 1960s you know? <laughs> movie is that? I don't know. <laughs> Spaghetti Western. Sure, sure, okay? sure. <laughs> it's the 60s doing the 1860s. Um, but you know, there's, I have those days, those like, let's hook up at the saloon kind of days and like days where I'm like, yeah, let's go pick flowers. And like, that's just being human, you know, like that's, we all have days where our gender changes a little bit and that might affect our sexual desire. I think that's a useful, uh, addition. Um, not, not to say that, you know, saloons are sexual and flowers are non-sexual, um, right. I, and I didn't mean to imply that at all. I was mostly just really, I just wanted to dive deep. How dare you ever use feeling. an example, Annalie? We all know that what you, know, you meant is that masculinity is hot and femininity is flowers. And I just. And I didn't, I didn't even bring up the spittoon. Calling you in. You know what I mean? I'm calling you in. No, but um, yes, in addition <laughs> to sometimes our interests in, uh, you know, uh, expression, dress, mannerisms, whatever, don't line up with what our partners find hot. So there's that element. And then it's also possible that sometimes various shifts in gender expression are motivated primarily by something libidinal or primarily by something that feels totally disconnected to sex. So there's also that element too. Like, you you know, it it may be that on those days or in those modes, your partner also feels very cuddly. And you, you don't say that your partner has on those days initiated sex often. And again, could be because your partner's nervous too, could be something else going on entirely, could be because your partner shares that sense that those days have more to do with a certain type of platonic warmth and connection. Um, there could be a number of other factors at play there. So yeah, don't assume that you are uh, that your partner wants or needs you to have a sexual response to those modes. Um, I think really just if you talk about them more, those modes, I mean, you'll you'll have a better sense of what your partner is hoping for, um, to what degree you can meet your partner in those places, to what degree you might say, like, I can meet you in this way and not in that one. Let's talk about that. Maybe you're disappointed or hurt. Let's talk about that. That doesn't make you or me bad. Um, maybe there's ways that your partner might want to share that mode with other people in their life. Maybe they're already doing it. You know, I mean, all of this is like, fine, workable, up for discussion. No one is doing anything wrong. It's really just that you have to talk about it because otherwise you will just think, what does this mean to my partner? I don't know. And if I ask, I'm bad and unsupportive. And you're not. Not at all. In fact, you're being supportive by acknowledging what they're doing and giving them a space to discuss it. I think my last thought here, and again, I I feel like I have been answering this question in some ways with the sort of underlying assumption that your partner is like moving towards an understanding of themselves as a trans feminine person. And um, that may not be the case at all. And so I don't want to imply that like a decided transition is in your partner's future and it's just time to get on board that train. That said, this I think certainly has lots to do with issues that concern 
you know, issues of like trans feminism. And I would take this as an opportunity to say, you know, do I have trans women in my life? Do I have trans feminine people in my life? Have I read anything by trans women who, you know, write and think about these things? Um, and again, it is not like, yes, I know five trans women. I'm a good person. That is, I'm not suggesting you take a trans lady audit in your life so that you can beat yourself up or congratulate yourself. Certainly, I'm not advocating like you should go outside and say like, I need a trans lady friend to help me. You know, like I'm Ebenezer Scrooge and you trans lady <laughs> are the beautiful turkey <laughs> hanging up in the butcher's window. Uh, that will fill my life and the Cratchit's life with joy. Um, Go to the trans lady saloon. No, yeah, no saloons. <laughs> Do not instrumentalize other people. But again, you know, if this is your first encounter, despite being, you know, a queer person with anything approaching trans femininity, again, that might be a good indicator that, you know, where have you gotten your other ideas about trans femininity from? Because I bet you've picked some up, even if it was just like I was a kid when Ace Ventura 2 came out. And there's a lot of shit there to unlearn, pick apart, challenge, resist. Um, now might be a good time to give some more thought to those questions. Again, don't behave like our first letter writer and go like grab a trans lady and be like, it's your job to make me a better person. Please explain your life to me. You know, <laughs> use, exactly. use your common sense, good judgment, be polite. Don't be weird. Don't instrumentalize people. But um, yeah, you know, give it some thought. Absolutely. Boy, that first letter writer, huh? Yep. That was a time that happened. <laughs> we, we really had a time today, I would say. These were, some, these were some thorny thickets. I know. They ran the gamut from kind of like gentle queries to like, you know, kind of huge systemic questions about how to be a feminist. So... I think, I think we handled them with aplomb. Yeah. You know, and I'm always, it's always a good day when I get to tell someone, it's fine to just find your father disappointing. Annalie, you, on the other hand, are not a disappointment in any way. Thank you so much. This was great. It was so wonderful to uh, participate in answering some of these, these letters and finally be on a show that I listen to all the time. So... Uh, thank you so much. I am going to keep an eye out for any questions that might have to do with lost cities or, um, you know, the, the the origins of urbanization. And man, oh man, if they ever come up. I'm ready. You know, if Imhotep the Builder is ever like, I've got an issue with drainage, I'm saving it for you. <laughs> Excellent. All of your, like, uh, infrastructure questions, you know, municipal politics, those kinds of thorny Irrigation. personal issues. Absolutely. Climate change, how it affects your city. Um, all that stuff, I'm there. I'm there to solve those those questions. <laughs> if the sea people show up, I'm giving you a call. The Phoenicians, that's right. We don't know that they were the Phoenicians, do we? We I don't. The whole thing was that we don't. We don't know. know. What we do know is that sea people was probably a racist term for a bunch of different groups. I thought that it was an open question as to whether it described one organized group of people or whether or not it just referred to anyone who was fleeing other collapsing cities and arrived by boat. That's interesting. I. Don't, that's not my understanding from reading um, work on the Bronze Age. I, the, the term sea peoples is used by groups who are casting aspersions on these disorganized merchants who weren't part of any kind of league of cities or any, you know, pre-existing agreement. And so they were kind of like, I, I'm always saying the sea peoples are like the Jews of the Bronze Age, you know, because they're like blamed for like, everything. You know, they're blamed for the collapse. They're blamed for greed. You know, they're always doing tradery thing, you know, trading. And so anyway. 
I mean, I'm basing this on my having read the one book by Eric Klein, 1177, <laughs> The Year Civilization <laughs> Collapsed. So, you know, my my level of expertise is exactly one pop history book. And, and it's a great book. It's a great book. But you have to read Josephine Quinn's book, The Phoenicians, um, which is like much more in-depth. And, um, and, you know, just keep in mind, see people's is maybe not the term that they would have preferred for themselves. I mean, fair. I'm not too worried about how, like, <laughs> we don't know who they were and they're all very gone. Uh, so I'm not too, too worried. But I do I do take your broader point. You certainly. never know when you're going to have a time machine situation. You're going to go back there and they're going to be like, who the fuck are you calling C people? Get out of here. <laughs> Get off my show. Get off my show. But later, email me that other book you were mentioning because I, I want to okay. read it. All right. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message, 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Do not expect that every woman you meet is going to feel like someone that you stand in gender solidarity with. I mean, my God, what kind of a burden is that? Like, she can just be a lady you don't like. You can you can also certainly think, like, I don't think much of her choices. And, you know, she, she reminds me of certain, like, sexist stereotypes that I don't like to think about. But... You know, my God, if I, if I expected that every trans person I met was going to feel like a sibling in arms, you know, I, I can expect certain things from other trans people or feel a general sense of, of, of collective um, shared interests, although not always shared interests. But sometimes I just don't, we don't like each other. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.